Hi there. Thanks for joining me on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga and the creator of the Momentum Magic Method, the way to become a confident teacher who seamlessly shares cues and easily creates sequences, whose classes are transformational, not just transactions, who understands anatomy and who shares their passion in a unique and authentic way. On the podcast, you'll hear anatomy lessons, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal growth because having a strong and healthy mindset is such an important piece of being a confident teacher. In addition to the podcast, follow me on Instagram and TikTok for daily videos on teaching topics. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. Hi there. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 267. So I am recording this on November 9th. This will go live on November 13th, 2023. And I want to start out by thanking you for listening because last week the podcast hit a major milestone. I crossed over 100,000 downloads. And whether you've listened to one or a bunch of episodes, or this is your first episode, you are now helping this podcast, uh, you know, kind of go even, go even higher in terms of the goals, the, the goals that are out there for number of listeners, number of downloads, So I'm just thrilled. When I started this podcast years ago, I knew that I wanted to have conversations with yoga teachers and I never would have expected it would have been hours and hours and hours. I mean, over 100,000 downloads, 267 episodes, that's at least 267 hours of content. But I know that many of the episodes have gone over an hour. So it's more than that. You know, just dozens of guests, dozens, hundreds of topics. Uh, I mean, obviously 267 topics. So the scale of it is just enormous. And I'm just so thrilled. I love doing it. I was um, pretty sure when I started this podcast, it was going to be something I loved. And I just am just blown away every week by how much I love just opening my laptop and just talking to you, having a conversation with you. That is, of course, in the spirit of podcasting, one-sided. Um, the thing, though, is I oftentimes talk to yoga teachers, and you may be one of them, and you'll say to me, oh, I listened to your podcast, or oh, I remember when you mentioned that on your podcast. So I have the actual real-life conversation with you after the pot, the podcast conversation. And that's okay with me. Um, you know, one of the things that I love about this particular style of communicating is I think it's the most portable, you know, I mean, of course you've got your Instagram and TikTok on your phone and that is portable. I think though, there's something even more portable about just putting your earbuds in and walking around and listening to content. I think there's something even more portable because in that scenario, you have your hands free and sure, you're not getting the visual, but I think that's part of the magic, right? When you and I can connect and it's just my voice in your ear, I think there's something really personal about that. And and I can tell you as a content creator and I've, oh my God, I've been out there on the social networks for so many years and I've got thousands and thousands of hours of video content and obviously audio content, I can say that 
as a content creator, I actually feel like I can share more with you here in the podcast than in the visual platforms. You know, and part of it is because it is just audio. You can't see me. And so I feel like there's just a little more freedom that I have as um, a messenger, as a content creator to really share from my heart. Now, having said that, I have no, I am not a wallflower. I have no problem sharing from my heart and, you know, being authentically me when I'm on camera, but I don't know. There's just something about me just sitting here with my laptop that just lends itself to just sharing. And, uh, and I know that some of the episodes that yoga teachers have told me have been, you know, most impactful to them have been ones where I've told stories, ones where I've shared from my personal life, ones where, you know, episodes where I maybe shared something that was a little vulnerable. So uh, yeah, so I just love it. And I, and there's just many, many, many hours ahead of us uh, where I will be using this uh, channel in my portfolio of channels uh, to connect with you. And I want you to really know, I mean, Honestly, I'm a little bummed because I really was hoping that I would hear from, from more yoga teachers who were listeners to this week's episode. And I, I sort of don't know what it is going to take to motivate you to reach out and connect with me beyond just being a listener, beyond just being a watcher, you know, beyond just being someone in the woodwork. I mean, I think in my mind, what it really takes is you being at a place as a yoga teacher where you feel now's the time to take action. And I think it also takes me sharing messaging with you that just resonates with you so deeply that you just have no choice. You just feel compelled to reach out to me. And, you know, if you listen to any number of my episodes, you know that I almost always end the episode with an offer to you to reach out to me in the DMs on Instagram. And I think I even said in the last episode, something to the effect of, you know, don't be shy, please reach out. And, you know, as I sit here on Thursday, November 9th, that episode's been live since Monday. And I know there've been hundreds of downloads and I haven't gotten one DM. And so I sort of wonder, does that have something to do with my messaging? Does that have something to do with where you're at? Does that have something to do with what I always have in the back of my mind, which is you're afraid if you talk to me, I'm going to try to sell you my program. And I just cannot emphasize this enough. You control your wallet. You control what you enroll in. I can't make you do anything. And, you know, the reality is I talk to hundreds of yoga teachers every month and some of them are in 200 hour trainings, in other trainings, you know, specialty type trainings, like they're not even people that would most likely enroll in my program because they're already in another program. But I still talk to them because part of my part of what I love is to learn more about where you're at and to hear more from you. And part of what yoga teachers tell me they love about connecting with me is for once they actually feel heard. They actually feel like someone's asking them, where do you want to go as a yoga teacher? What's your vision? What's your dream? Like, I seriously want to ask you, has anybody ever asked you that? I want you to like really 
like even your partner in life, has your partner in life asked you what's your vision for yoga teaching? What's your vision for you as a yoga teacher? And I mean, if they haven't, it's not, it's not necessarily a problem, but this is what I mean about connecting with me. It's not so I can sell you something. It's so that I can hear where you're at and maybe share something that will be of help to you and, and to give you an opportunity to articulate where you want to go as a yoga teacher. What do you want to do? What are some of the challenges you're having? What are some of the things you're doing that aren't getting you results? What are some of the pressures you're feeling? What are some of the mindset challenges you're having? What are some negative beliefs that hold you back from teaching confidently? What are some fears you have around teaching? I mean, we can have an entire conversation around that and hang up the phone and maybe I'll never hear from you again, but maybe for that conversation, you'll have had some epiphany that really serves you as a teacher. So I just can't emphasize it enough. Like, this is why I called this podcast Conversations for Yoga Teachers, because it's about having conversations. It's not about having sales calls. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking to have conversations. So again, I just I just uh, offer that to you, you know, with all these episodes as you're listening, you know, as as you're hearing me say things that resonate with you. I mean, if anything, just send me uh, an, a message on on Instagram. Oh, Karen, I really love that episode. You know, I don't ask people to write reviews because I I just think it's kind of a pain. You're you're listening on your phone and then you have to go to iTunes. I actually think the whole interface for for a person to write a review for someone's podcast is just so cumbersome. I never, I very intentionally never ask you to write a review. I would love though, if you'd send me a DM and tell me you listened to the episode or leave me a voice note. I actually don't know how to do that. I get voice notes sometimes from teachers and I'm like, how are they doing that? But um, leave me a voice note, leave me a, a comment on one of my posts on Instagram, send me a direct message and just tell me what you thought of the episode. You know, tell me what resonated with you. So again, because this is a one-way communication channel where I'm just talking out into the ether, it's nice sometimes to get that feedback. Now, knowing that I'm still motoring forward, like it really doesn't, like it really doesn't have an impact whether or not you reach out to me or not, because I know so many of the yoga teachers that I talk to, they do tell me they listen to the show. So even though I'm not hearing from people, I know people are listening and obviously a hundred thousand downloads is the data to support that. Um, it's just fun to hear from people. And of course, it's more than fun for me. Like it is critical to my mission of getting as many yoga teachers out there as possible teaching. Like that is my fucking mission. If I haven't said that enough, I, if I haven't said that enough, I really, really want to just make sure you know what my mission is. My mission is to get as many yoga teachers out there impossible, out there as possible, teaching confidently, teaching authentically. That is my mission. And, you know, baked into that is a whole, are a whole bunch of other results. When you teach confidently, you enjoy your teaching more. When you teach authentically, it feels so much easier 
when you feel confident and authentically, you naturally radiate positive energy and make better connections with your students. When you teach confidently and authentically, you, you have better connections with your students, you engage with them more, you know, it generates more interest and energy to, to your classes and your class sizes will grow. You'll have more confidence to go out and pursue more teaching opportunities. Ones that, hello, are not tied to studios that you can set the rate for, that you can do whatever you want. So the ripple effect of being a confident, authentic teacher is just so, it's just, it's not that it's intense. It's just so um, amazing. I mean, amazing isn't even a good enough word, but it's just so meaningful. And so that's why I know my mission is clear. Every yoga teacher I talk to who has hesitancy around teaching, who feels nervous around teaching, who doesn't feel like they're themselves when they're teaching, who feels pressure, who has mindset uh, challenges, who has limiting beliefs, you know, all of those problems. Like if you are out there with those sorts of problems, you're, you're my mission <laughs> is to help you move past those. And I know how to do it. I've done it with other teachers and I would love to do it with you. So I know exactly what my mission is. So I guess my question to you is, do you know what your mission is? Do you know what your mission is as a yoga teacher? Because once you have a mission, the road is really clear. Your decisions come so easy. Decisions around what kind of sequence do you want to teach? What kind of cueing do you want to use? What kind of workshops do you want to offer? Where do you want to teach? What style yoga do you want to teach? What's your teaching methodology? What opportunities do you want to create in your community? How do you want your social media to look like? What's your brand? Like all those things just become so clear. You know, that's why when I work with teachers in my program, one of the first things they do is they, they watch a video in the intro section about what's your mission. And then we have a conversation about it. So that's, that's where we're starting here for this conversation. <laughs> so what I want to talk about today, so thank you. Bottom line is thank you, thank you, thank you very much for listening and being part of those 100,000 downloads. We're already, I'm already past that, but thank you for being part of that. So what I want to share with you today, we're going to get into a little bit of the anatomy because I had a conversation uh, yesterday, Wednesday, I had a, a momentum call with one of the teachers in my program and she was having so many realizations about cues that she was using, conversations she was having with students. And I wanna share with you some of the anatomical themes that came up. And I'm actually gonna get her permission to actually share the audio from the call with you because I want you to actually hear the conversation word for word. Today though, what I'm gonna do is I'm going to um I'm going to share some of the anatomical themes that we went over because these are themes that will apply to you and your classes and your cues and your teaching. So one of the things she was noticing is 
and one of the things we were discussing is the idea of, well, first we started to talk about anatomical movements and we talked about the different anatomical movements that have, I'm not gonna go over all of them here, but we were talking about it in the context of how important it is for us to understand these anatomical movements as the first step in understanding anatomy because the anatomical movements are the basis for understanding how the joints move, how the muscles act in certain movements. And of course, poses are movement, right? Obviously the pose is static, but to get into the posture, we, we use movement. And then when we're holding the posture, we have our joints in certain positions, anatomical positions, flexion, extension, internal, external rotation, ex, um, abduction and adduction plantar flexion, dorsiflexion. And so we were talking about that and we were talking about the anatomical movements and she was starting to describe some things she was seeing in her students when she is teaching them. And so we were talking about bringing people into a squat and how sometimes their heels lift up and how sometimes teachers will offer roll up the front edge of your mat and put your heels on the front edge of the mat. And so what we were discussing or what she was asking was why does that happen? Why does someone feel like they need to lift their heels when they are coming into a squat? And it usually happens more the lower they go. And so what this, what this, um, illustrates is what's known as a muscle compensation. And you can think of a muscle compensation as something a muscle is doing to compensate for something that it doesn't have, an ability that it doesn't have. That's sort of the consumer uh, definition. And so when I go into the example here of bringing people into a squat and lifting the heels, you'll have a better idea of what that means. So let's first look, I want you to imagine in your mind, you have people just doing like a goddess squat type thing where they're standing with their feet out wide, hips are in abduction and external rotation, and they begin to bend their knees as they deepen into the squat. So the lower they go into the squat, let's first look at the squat in terms of the anatomical position. So we have uh, in a pretty high squat, not very low, we have triple flexion. Flexion of the hips, flexion of the knees, flexion of the ankles. And the lower we go, closer to the ground, coming into like the balsana yogi squat, uh, the more flexion we get in those three joints. And so what's required the lower we go is more flexion from the muscles that flex and more extension from the muscles that I'm sorry, more flexion from the muscles that flex and more allowing from the muscles that extend. Because as I come into a squat and my hips are moving into flexion, and let's look for instance at a muscle like the psoas. So the psoas is a hip flexor. So I come into a squat, my hip flexors, my psoas, my rectus um, femoris are flexing the hip. 
on the other side of the joint, my gluteus maximus, which is a hip extensor, is lengthening. So if my hip extensor is tight, it's not going to allow my hip flexor to take me deeper into a squat. As I go further down the kinetic chain and I look at the knee, so the flexor of the knee is the uh, hamstring, hamstrings. The extensor of the knee is the quads. So the lower I go in a squat, my hamstrings are working, concentrically contracting, and my quads are eccentrically lengthening. When I get down to the ankles, my ankles are in dorsiflexion. And the lower I go, the muscle of dorsiflexion of the ankle, which is the tibialis anterior, is doing more and more and more dorsiflexion the lower I go. So that means on the other side of the ankle joint, on the posterior aspect, the calf muscle or the gastrocnemius is eccentrically lengthening the lower I go. So now we look at a student who goes from a standing squat to a deep squat and their heels lift. So the give the breakaway point or the point where there's give, where the person's quote unquote out of alignment is at the ankle because they're still flexing their hips, flexing their knees. But when they get to the ankle, when they get low, their ankle, their heels lift. So there's something problematic with the ankle joint at that part of the kinetic chain. And so what this demonstrates is the lower they go as the demand for eccentric lengthening in the gastroc increases, their muscle gets to a point where it just doesn't have enough flexibility, doesn't have enough length, lengthening ability. And so the compensation is the heels lift. See, this is one of the really interesting things about the body. The body will figure out a way to get into the yoga pose, even if from an anatomical standpoint, all the muscles involved in getting you into that posture or getting your student into that posture aren't functionally, um, aren't as functional, ideally functional as they need to be from a range of motion perspective or other perspectives. You can still most likely get into the pose, but there's going to be some compensation that shows up. And this is why for yoga, <clears throat> for yoga teachers, it's so magical when we understand anatomy and we're watching students and we see these compensations appear and we can point out to ourselves in our own mind what's most likely happening. And so that allows us to, in a really impactful way to the student, give them a modification that's really going to help them out because we most likely know what the problem is. And so you know, in this example here, the why behind the cue of if your heels are lifting, slide a slide a rolled up mat underneath it or rolled up blanket or something. The why behind that is because you're basically uh, um, accounting for the fact that the gastrocnemius is too tight. And rather than ask, rather than increase the demand on the ankle joint to be in so much dorsiflexion, you're decreasing the amount of dorsiflexion because as the heel lifts, you're coming more into plantar flexion, which is less dorsiflexion. So the angle is getting bigger. So there's less demand on the gastroc to stretch. So that is the full picture. And you know, I want you to really, really appreciate that that's a full explanation. That's not something you'd probably go into in this level of detail with your student. However, 
you're not off the hook to know it because the more you know it, the more, even when you don't share everything that I just shared, the more confident you are and the more helpful you can be. So to just finalize this one example, the solution, potential solution for your student with this problem is to give them things to do where they where they are stretching their calves and to stretch their calves they need to come into plantar uh wait a minute they need to come into dorsiflexion right because the gastroc points the toes the gastroc is the plantar flexor so the more uh they need to yeah, they need to stretch. So they need to come into more dorsiflexion. So the more you have them do things where the feet are in flexion, the more they will have opportunity to stretch the calves. So something like downward dog is an example, even just like a seated staff pose, just have them move through plantar flexion and dorsiflexion is a good, good way to do that. So that's the, the story on this particular example. The other example that came up in my call with uh, Gigi was she has a student or had a student this week who was complaining of low back pain and bridge. And, you know, when a student complains of pain, it's sort of a gray area for us as teachers because we can't, we're not physicians, we're not in the medical field, so we can't treat them, we can't tell them definitively what it is. However, as movement professionals, as we understand anatomy, we can definitely help them with some suggestions and definitely help them with different, um, different thoughts around poses they can do. They can sort of be their own experimenter around trying different postures and seeing what might uh, relieve some of the pain and discomfort, going into certain poses where pain appears and changing their alignment, seeing if that helps. So we can work with them to help them try different things so that they can start to figure out what might be the problem. So when you know, you have a student and in Gigi's case has this student complains of low back pain in bridge. So where the heck do you start there? So the place to start is number one, you want to look at bridge as a pose and identify what are the joints doing in the pose. And here, because the area of concern is the lower back, she's complaining of lower back pain. We want to be looking at the area of the hips. So we look at someone in bridge pose and the first question is what position are the hips in? So in bridge, the hips are in extension, bilateral hip extension, meaning both hips are in extension. In a lunge, you'd have one hip in extension, one hip in flexion. So you have a person in bridge, <clears throat> they're in bilateral hip extension. So the next question is what muscle is creating hip extension? So the muscle of hip extension is the gluteus maximus assisted by the hamstrings. The hamstrings are a synergist to glute max in the action of hip extension. So in a perfect scenario, someone comes into bridge and they're using their glute max assisted by their hamstrings to extend the hips. But this person's complaining of low back pain. So what that suggests is that they're using a muscle in their lower back instead of using the gluteus max. And it might not be an all or nothing. It might be they're using some amount of musculature in the low back and not primarily using the muscle in the hip, the glute max. And when, when we say using, what we mean is you know, 
for every joint action that we do there in a pose, there is a muscle that is primed to do that joint action. It's the muscle that has the best leverage. It's the muscle that's positioned uh, in the right way. It's the muscle whose origin and insertion are in the right place and have the right line of, of force and effort as the person comes into the posture to create the action you want. So in a posture like bridge, where you want to move both hips into extension, the muscle that's going to have the best opportunity to put the hips in, in extension is a muscle in the hip, not a muscle in the low back, right? The low back's in the neighborhood, but it's not the hip, right? It's not the hip joint. The muscles in the lumbar spine or the, the joints in the lumbar spine are not hip joints. They're spinal joints, but they're close. And this is where the body is like so crafty, you know, intellectually, the person's like, I know what bridge is, I can do bridge pose. But if the body at the level of the skeletal muscles and the level of the motor neurons that the nervous system is activating to trigger the muscle of the hip of extension, glute max, and it gets there and the, the muscle fibers are not responding well, because let's say the muscle is a little weak, well, the body's just going to be let me just go to a neighboring muscle and see if I can recruit somebody next door. And that's where the low back comes into play. But the lower back musculature, the erector spinae of the lower back, they're not in the right place to make the hips lift off the floor, but they're close. So this is where sometimes people can experience discomfort. They're not using the primary muscle to do the joint action. And that's why they might be, an exper might be experiencing pain in a neighboring joint or a neighboring set of muscles. And so why wouldn't they be using their glute max for bridge? Well, maybe because their glute max is weak. And why would their glute max possibly be weak? Well, if they sit a lot during the day, their hips are in passive flexion. And that means in passive flexion, the glute max is just passively stretching. And so then when they go to yoga and they try to actively use the, the glute max, for hip extension, it's been passively stretching all day. So it's hard for those muscle fibers to generate enough power to engage effectively to be the prime mover of hip extension. So the body has to go to the next door neighbor, which could be the hamstrings, by the way, but in some people's cases might be the lower back. And so this can be why the person might experience low back pain when they are coming into bridge. So again, a very long explanation. However, I think this is needed, especially if you're short on your anatomy knowledge. You know, this is higher level stuff. This is not the kind of stuff that you're going to get in probably even your 200 hour teacher training, because this is applied anatomy. And this is part of what I teach you in my program, because I don't want you just memorizing muscles. That is not going to help you. You need to understand how to apply the anatomy in the context of the cues you say. That's why the momentum calls I have with teachers where we actually talk about cues that they're using are so transformative for these teachers. When I was talking to Gigi, she was like, her eyes were lighting up. She was having this really impactful, what I call light bulb moment where all the pieces were coming together. And she was saying, oh my goodness, now I'm getting it. And you have to understand like now when she goes in and teaches bridge pose, she is going to be so much more confident. It's going to be undeniable that she knows the why behind those cues. 
And that just translates into more confidence, more authentic teaching, more powerful teaching for her students, more of an ability for her to make an impact. It's just so great. So that is the story with, um, with that example of bridge. The other thing I wanted to bring up is this idea of range of motion as the great modifier. You know, in the example of the squat, going into the squat, the deeper you go in the squat, squat has triple flexion. The deeper you go, the more uh, flexion at the hip, the knee, and the ankle that's happening. Um, the other way to look at that is the range of motion increases in the area of flexion the deeper you go in the squat. And so what that means is, and the example we talked about of the person lifting their heels is a good one to use here. If somebody has some sort of muscular limitation, too tight, too, too weak, you know, not flexible enough uh, at a particular joint in a particular muscle, the great modifier you can, you can use is just to not have the range of motion demand be so high to simply limit how much range of motion you're asking for from the joint. So the squat is a perfect example of this. The lower you go in the squat, the more range of motion you're asking for from the hip, the knee, and the ankle. But if you don't go so low in the squat, the range of motion demand decreases. And that's a really great modifier that you can use to allow people to compensate for joints that don't have as much flexibility as you want or as much range of motion as you want. So just to be sure we're all on the same page, range of motion is the measurement of the joint as it moves through its anatomical movements. So as I take my arms up to the sky in warrior one, that's shoulder flexion. But if I can't take my arms all the way up to the sky into 180 degrees of shoulder flexion, and I can only get my arms halfway up, that's not full shoulder flexion. I have some sort of limitation that's preventing full range of motion at my shoulder joint to come into flexion. So, you know, range of motion is the metric used by physical therapists. It's measured with a tool called a goniometer, looks like a protractor, and range of motion is measured in degrees. Now, of course, as we teach yoga, we're not measuring anybody's range of motion, but we sure as heck are looking at their movements and we can see when someone's out of alignment or when someone's not fully in the pose. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a problem with the range of motion they have at a particular joint in their body. So I really hope that you appreciate how just impactful it is to understand these anatomical terms, these anatomical concepts. This is not dry, boring stuff. I mean, I hope you're as jazzed about this as I am talking about it. You can just hear in my voice how quickly I'm talking, how quickly these thoughts are coming to me, how much I want to share these thoughts with you, because this is the kind of stuff that can fucking transform the way you teach. Because when you know this, you will just blow the doors off your students with your cues, with your confidence, with your connection with them with your ability to give them fun little homework exercises they can do to be an experimenter around their practice and their body and building strength and increasing range of motion. Like it is just, the sky is the limit for you. So I especially want you to know if you think that you're the kind of person who can't learn anatomy or you're out there making all the mistakes of, please don't tell me you're buying a book. Please just don't tell me you're buying a book to learn anatomy. It will not work. Not as your primary way to learn anatomy. Reading books for anatomy is a nice top off. You must have conversations 
to learn anatomy because there's just too many questions that are going to come up based on every single thing you're learning. You know, that's why when teachers are telling me these days they're taking 200 hour teacher trainings and they're just watching videos, I just, I want to scream. I want to scream at our industry for creating this expectation that one can learn how to be a yoga teacher by watching hours of video. You cannot do it. I mean, years ago, we were having the industry argument that you couldn't even be a good teacher by taking 200 hours of in-person training. And now people are going to create hours of videos and people are just going to watch videos and think they're going to walk into a room and teach a bunch of people. No, it's not going to happen. I mean, it's going to happen, but it's not going to happen well. And the person's going to be freaking out. So honestly, if you're making the mistake of thinking you can learn anatomy by buying a book, watching YouTube videos, doing what I call the choose your own adventure and trying to figure it out, you're going to go down so many rabbit holes and waste so much time. The time you are going to waste, the money you are going to spend is going to be, you might as well just throw it out the window. So if this is where you're at, I'll say it again, send me a DM on Instagram and just use the word anatomy and let's talk about it, right? Let's just talk about it. That's all. Okay. So next topic, experimenting. This is the last topic. I am uh, currently working on like a super secret project um, and it has to do with, actually, this is not the last topic. This is the second to last one. It has to do with, um, oh God, how can I describe this? It has to do with coming to a central theme for all of what I do and all of what I believe in when it comes to you, when it comes to communicating with you, when it comes to sharing with you, what I really feel is that the essence of what it means to be a confident, authentic teacher. And one of the, I've been doing some work. And again, once, once I have the big reveal on this, I'll, I'll tell you the behind the scenes, but um, suffice it to say for now, I am doing all this work on the side to craft this. Um, it's not even really messaging. I mean, it kind of is, but it's going to be something bigger than that. And there's one theme that keeps coming up to me over and over and over again. And it's this word experimenting. And along with the experimenting, it's this other word willing. And so when you put those together, you come up with willing to experiment, willing to experiment. And when I, when I think of being, when I think of a person who's willing to experiment, another word comes to my mind, curious, someone who's curious, little kids are curious, little kids never say, I mean, I don't have kids, so I don't know. And I know sometimes, cause I've worked with kids for many, many years as a yoga teacher, I know sometimes they don't want to try things, but outside of those examples, like little kids typically are just super curious and they're willing to try anything. Oh, come over here and try this. Oh, come. I mean, yes, show me how to do it. Like everything I've done with kids over many, many, many years in the context of teaching them yoga and playing different yoga games with them, they've always been so curious. And then we get to be adults and we lose all our curiosity and we also lose our willingness and we lose our willingness to experiment. And the reason we do that is because we have experiences in our life that prove, or th we think they prove to us that it doesn't pay well to be curious. And there's, 
and we can't experiment because we're not that kind of person. We're the kind of person who X or we're the kind of yoga teacher who Y or we're the kind of yoga teacher who never does X, Y, Z or we're the kind of yoga teacher who always does A, B, C. Like we develop these really fixed views of ourself. And, we and when we have a really fixed view of who we are as a yoga teacher, which by the way, is connected to who you think you are as a person, that means we're not willing to experiment. We're, we're just set in our ways. We're like that old man sitting in the recliner watching football on Sundays, and that's just what he does. And I know you don't want to be that person and you don't want to be that yoga teacher. So one of the magical qualities that you can tap into in your work to be a confident, authentic teacher, one of the qualities you can tap into is your curiosity and your willingness to experiment. When you are willing to experiment with different ways of approaching your teaching, it is in those experiments that you may find, holy cow, I'm not the kind of yoga teacher who has to practice with my class all, all the time. I actually just taught a class and didn't practice with them. Holy cow, you know, or when you experiment with teaching the same sequence for two weeks in a row, at the end of those two weeks, oh my God, I just experimented teaching the same sequence and the sky didn't fall. No one ran out of my class saying, you're the most boring teacher in the world. I didn't go home and have a nervous breakdown. I just stuck to the same sequence. I was willing to try it. Every time you're willing to try something different, you're experimenting with disproving a belief that you have about yourself. And you must know, my friend, you must know, and I'm speaking to you from my own personal experience, the beliefs you have about yourself are just beliefs. And they are just inside you waiting to be disproven or unproven, whatever the word is. But you as the person need to take the action to experiment, to disprove your own beliefs. Now, there's plenty of evidence out there in the world, but oftentimes when we believe certain things about ourselves, even when we see evidence to the contrary out there in the world, it's not enough to move us. It's like we have to sort of experience the opposite or an alternate in order to loosen our attachment to this fixed belief we have about ourselves. And that's why I say in the magic of, well, and that's why I say in experimenting, trying something different in regards to something about your teaching, some approach to teaching, some way of being is teaching, something about your teaching, uh, you may begin to actually disprove some of the theories you have about yourself, some of the beliefs you have about yourself. I have many, many examples of this, and I'll just end with a quick story. So one of the teachers in my program, Rose, she has been just knocking it out of the park. She came to me like she, and actually every single, I just attract these kinds of yoga teachers and, and Rose is no exception. She's the kind of teacher who she came to me with a desire to show up more confidently and authentically to her students in her classes. And even though she wasn't sure how to get there, she was willing. She was willing. She was also a little bit afraid, but she was more willing than 
succumbing to the fear. So if you're listening to this and you're that kind of person, you're my person. You're my kind of yoga teacher that I can help. I'm not going to be able to help you if you're going to just dig your heels in and say, I can't change. I'm not going to be able to help you if you're going to say, I don't have any money to invest in your program. It's not worth it. I'm not going to be able to help you if you're going to sit there and say, it's not worth it to change. I'm getting more out of teaching if I just stay stuck on my, like, I can't help somebody like that. Somebody who stands up for their limitations and argues for their limitations, you're not my person. But all of the teachers I attract, and it's it's a reflection of my energy that I attract these people, the kind of people who they sort of have doubt, but it's not doubt that prevents them from trying something different. And so in Rose, she had over the past couple of months that we've been working, and it hasn't even been that long. It's probably been just about two months she had this goal of doing more of the walk and talk and less practicing with her class. And the other thing that she was experiencing was this emotional charge attached to going in to teach. And she brought up something that I thought was so relatable that when she would go off to teach someone in her house, like I guess her husband, I don't necessarily think her kids, but maybe her kids, but definitely her husband would say, good luck, like as she was leaving to teach her class, you know, kind of like going off to do a Broadway show, good luck, break a leg, you know, I think he literally said good luck. And that would be really triggering to her. And when she said that, I was like, God, I totally get that. Like you're already sort of feeling nervous you're, and then you're leaving the house and your husband or boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever significant others like, good luck. There's just something pretty obnoxious in that. It's like, good luck. I hope you don't screw it up. And so I could totally see that that would be triggering to her, especially because she was already feeling nervous. And so what she described to me in an email she sent me this week was that over the past several weeks of us working together, and as we've been having conversations about limiting beliefs and her perception of herself and why are these things triggering and what does she wanna do in terms of goals around her teaching, one of the central themes was making teaching more neutral, making the experience of teaching less emotionally charged, less um, fiery and more neutral, just more vanilla. And so she sent me this email this week and she said, Karen, I taught class every once in a while. If I did a little mess up, I didn't even care. Uh, when I left the house and my husband said, good luck, didn't even bother me. When I taught the class and I was done, I just was like in my head, like that was fine. There was no emotional charge. And I jumped for joy. I mean, I just wish that I lived close to her. I, she's in, uh, oh gosh, New York, I believe. Uh, I, I would hug her. I mean, I was just so happy for her, you know, and I really want you to hear how amazing a realization this is for someone to have about not just them as a teacher, but as a person, 
you know, the, the reason that you may have some fears around teaching and the reason these things come up are often tied. And again, I'm speaking from my own experience, as well as the experiences of teachers I have worked with and I'm working with now. These fears and limitations about how we think about ourselves, they're often tied to things that have happened to us in our lives, experiences we've had, experiences we've had when we were young, things our parents said to us, beliefs that we were raised with, things that we, before we even had our own mind to think certain things and somebody else said, this is the way that is, you know, those are not beliefs that we came up with. They're beliefs that were just kind of handed to us. And so then you're going to go walk into a room with a bunch of people you don't know and expect that you're going to stand there off the yoga mat, not do any yoga and just walk them through this sequence and not have it bother you at all. That's a pretty tall order. Like there is something baked in, and it's not like I don't know what it is, but I'll just for purposes of this conversation say, there's definitely something baked into teaching yoga that is very triggering for people. And so if you're triggered by teaching yoga in your own personal way, and obviously it doesn't feel good, number one, you're not alone. And number two, it's something about teaching yoga that brings it out in people. It doesn't happen with personal trainers, doesn't happen with Pilates teachers that I've heard of. It very much happens with yoga teachers. And I think part of it is because people have this perception that because the practice is so time-tested and been out there for thousands of years and it has a spiritual component. And back in the day, there were stories of gurus and pictures of people sitting up on the dais and you know ordering people through these poses. People just have this feeling of like, there's so much pressure. There's so much pressure on me to show up in a certain way and to get it right and to do it right and to have all these spiritual things to say and all these complicated transitions. And I go to this person's class and she's doing whip-de-doo and flip-de-doo and I got to do that too. And my students expect me to change it up. Otherwise they're going to get bored. And am I really qualified? And do I really have enough experience? And uh, you might, you see, and all of those things are just triggering. I'm not ready. I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. What do you mean be authentic? Are you kidding me? I need to pretend to be like somebody else because that's the only way I can have the nerve to go in there and do this damn thing. So I just implore you to know that there is a better way. And again, this is why when I work with teachers in my program, a huge part of it is mindset. There is no mindset part of a 200 hour teacher training, but there is mindset in my program because without speaking to these topics, you cannot be an authentic, confident teacher. You must confront these limiting beliefs you have about yourself to go into a room and be a leader. When you go in to teach your students, you are a leader. You are not a follower. Get off the yoga mat. This is not follow me doing yoga. Being a yoga, why do you think I never, you will never hear me say yoga instructor. I will never use that term for you. You are a teacher. You are a teacher. And when you own being a teacher, not only will you get off the yoga mat, you will own what it means to teach people. And it's 
your duty as a teacher to do the inner work that is necessary so that you can move past these limiting beliefs and be an authentic, confident teacher. It's not an option. It is your duty. Now, if you don't do it, you will just probably experience teaching in a half-hearted way. And you can do that. But I'm telling you, there is a revelation for you just around the corner. There is teaching that is light. There is teaching that is full of joy. There is teaching that is full of impact. That is, there is teaching that is mission-driven. There is teaching that is authentically you, your method, your way, without a care in the world about anybody else any other teacher and their way because their way is not your way. And when you own your way, there is so much freedom in that. So I wanted to just end with that story about Rose, because, you know, for me, that is the culmination of, you know, just me developing my method, me developing my approach and working with teachers. And when I see people have results using my method. And it's not just that. And it's more about them being willing, them being curious, them being open, them being coachable. It's just magic. It's just magic. So we're at the end of today's episode. And if you've made it all the way to the end here, thank you. And send me your comments, send me your thoughts, send me your questions on Instagram, barebonesyoga. And if you're curious about learning anatomy from me, if you're curious about how do you get to be more curious, how do you start to embody this experimentation approach, you know, the best place to start is to ask yourself, what's my biggest problem right now? What is my biggest problem right now as a yoga teacher? Start with that. DM me your biggest problem as a yoga teacher. And that's where we're going to start when it comes to this experimenting conversation. I'll give you a couple ways you can be an experimenter, be a scientist, be an experimenter to work on that problem. And that would be fun. That would be a really fun, that would be a really fun experiment. So thank you so much for listening. And I will be talking to you on the next episode of Conversations for Yoga Teachers. Namaste. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And as a special thanks, DM me the words podcast offer, and I'll share with you a special opportunity for yoga teachers who are ready to be confident and skilled and drop all the prep time you most likely are doing, getting ready for class, drop practicing with class, and instead do what I call the walk and talk drop using the same cues over and over, and drop worrying what other people think. If this is you and you're ready to step into your most powerful, authentic way of teaching, just DM me the words podcast offer on my Instagram, and I'll tell you how I can help you.